For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. Yeah, chapter 4. So we've been working through this, and we've seen that one of the big themes, the big uh, pictures of what's going on in Daniel is this idea of being a light in the midst of darkness, that these guys... Daniel and his buddies have been captured. They've been taken to this hostile culture. They're under this maniac named Nebuchadnezzar. And God has called them to love and serve their captors, to be an example of his greatness, his goodness, and to be a blessing to those people, that they are to lay down their lives for the people who destroyed their culture, who tore down the temple of the Lord and hauled them off into captivity that they're finding ways to be flexible in the sense of not having to fight everything where their cultures are different, but other ways where they must be strong, where they can't agree to go in the way of the false gods of their culture, but they need to stand on the truth of the God of the Bible, that they need to speak the truth in love, that they are not there to cause a war or a culture battle, but they're there to show them a better way and that they need to be committed to praying for those who live in darkness and don't know the greatness of the God of the Bible who created us all for an incredible purpose. And this is really our part. This is who God wants us to be, not just Daniel and his buddies, but all of us. This is when we think about doing ministry, right? That word is kind of a churchy word. It just means serving. How does God want us to serve others? These are things that we, with God's help, God's power, we can do. That's, that's our part. But then there's God's part, right? And God does a lot on his part to reach those who don't know him and those who are living in darkness. Namely, he provides evidence. He moves in such a way where God, the God of the Bible is not a God who wants blind faith. He's a God of reason. He created our minds. He made and formed our minds the way that they are because he's a God of truth and he's a God that loves answers. And so he provides evidence through things like scripture. The Bible is given to us as a proof, as powerful evidence that there is a being that exists Uh, that is personal, that has thoughts, that has a mind, that has a sense of what moral right and wrong are, that he is loving and compassionate, but he is also just, and that he has spoken to us because he wants us to understand who he is. And if you read the Bible um, carefully, what you will begin to see is there are descriptions there about the human condition that has answers that fit better than any other text, any other philosophy, any other religious writing, that the Bible has super satisfactory explanations for the human condition. Namely, that we were created for the purpose of love and relationship, that we're we're created in the image of God, that we bear God's glory, but that we are broken, twisted, and desperately sick. And that's our heart. If we're honest, we see greatness and evil within ourselves. There is a conflict within all of us of the thing that we were made to be and the selfishness that we're driven to obey within ourselves. They are in constant conflict, and the Bible explains that amazingly. Plus, there's things like prophecy where God accurately foretells the future. He demonstrates that he exists outside of the human experience and is able to tell us what's going to happen in great detail thousands of years in the future. We'll talk more about that as we work through the book of Daniel, but it's in many other places as well. 
plus God provides personal experiences. I mean, really, the, a lot, the reason a lot of us are super committed is because, because of reason, because of the evidence, because of the way that God has laid out and explained the human condition. We've begun in faith acting on what God says is, is true, and then we experience the truth of it, that God confirms within us that he is real and that he is true. And a huge part of God's part in helping us come to an understanding of him is it's God's part. It's not our part to humble other people. It's God's part to bring us to the point where we, as human beings, can begin to understand that we are not God, that we are important, that we are meaningful, but that he is God and that we are his creation. And it is he who brings that truth into our lives in various different ways. And that's really the hard part. That's really what holds most of us from coming back and from moving forward in a relationship with God is accepting that we are not God. And you might say, that's, that shouldn't be that hard, right? Like, uh, if we went around the room here and we talked to people and we said, do you think you're God? Hopefully most of you would have a hard time saying, no, I don't think I'm God, right? But that's not because we don't understand the role of God. The role of God is to decide right and wrong for your life. And if we went around the room and said, do you, who decides what is evil and what is good in your life? Who decides what is right and wrong for you? A lot of us would say, me, that's me, that's my job. No one's taking that from me ever, right? Well, from the biblical perspective, that means that you think that you're your own God. And the problem with God coming in is he may disagree with you in your sovereignty about what's right and wrong for you. You go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, Genesis, chapter 3, and the temptation that Adam and Eve are facing is the tree will let them be like God, knowing good and evil for themselves. That was the whole thing that caused the rift between man and God. And here we are untold thousands of years later, and we all feel like I have the right to decide right and wrong for myself. And that's my problem with God, is he wants to tell me. It's just, it goes all the way back to the garden. The thing that stands in the way is humility, is understanding that we are not God. We were made to sacrificially love, right? Now, so many of us would say, oh, yeah, well, you know, I, I believe in love. Love is good. Yeah, I said sacrificial love, Right? What's easy is to love those who love you, to love those who give you what you want, to have a contractual agreement for conditional love. I will love you as long as you meet my needs and make me happy, right? That's easy, and that, that's what we think of. But sacrificial love is I will love you when it costs me more than I gain. I will love you because I choose love as being right, whether you love me or not. And we're like, whoa. I don't know if I would go that far. And it's like, that is our pride. That is that same thing getting in the way. And we have to come and realize and recognize our true place. And it is God's job to humble us and bring us there, which brings us to Nebuchadnezzar, right? Nebuchadnezzar, most powerful man of his time, and he knows it and he believes it, you know, he owns this. He's selfish. He's brutal. He's arrogant. He's far from God, right? He gets what he wants when he wants it right now. He's the most successful ruler uh, of his history. And yet he's witnessed something as he's captured these Jewish boys from Israel and brought them into his service. He's seen their faith, that they won't be intimidated, 
that they stay true to the teachings of the God of their fathers, that they are willing to help, and they are quite helpful in many ways. We've studied several of the different ways which Daniel and his friends have been a blessing to him. But how fearless they have been as they have known, essentially, Nebuchadnezzar, you are not in charge. God is in charge. And Nebuchadnezzar has been like, well, we'll see about that. And each time, he's found that the God of the Bible is real. He's found in these boys a wisdom that guides their lives, that has brought him comfort. As he has struggled with nightmares and and terrors and, and, and thoughts that have caused him to be perplexed, and as he has expressed his cynicism at the religious uh, leaders of the Babylonians, the Chaldean wizards, he's found no hope there. He's found no help there. But he has found hope and help in the God of the Bible. He's witnessed the power of God to protect his people, right? He demanded that Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego be thrown in the fiery furnace and saw God himself appear there and protect them. And so what is he seeing? He's accumulating evidence, evidence of an extraordinary type. But it's not just seeing miracles, and it's not just the prophecy of the statue that we studied. It's also the reasoning and the truth that spiritual truth is being demonstrated to him. And as prideful as he is, you can tell that he's He's beginning to listen. He's beginning to wonder. He's seen authentic spirituality at work, and it is changing him. But while he's been impressed, he has not been humbled. Every time we've read one of these stories, you know, he's reacted like, wow, your God's really sweet. You know, I like a God that gets things done, right? That's sort of been his response is, this is your God, and wow, that's cool. That's a neat trick. I'd like to see another one of those. Not, maybe I'm not the most powerful being in the universe, and maybe this God actually could have authority over me. We haven't seen that. And so he himself records what happens in chapter 4. Daniel 4, verse 1, Nebuchadnezzar the king, he was writing this himself. To all the peoples and nations of men of every language that live in all the earth. He's fully aware that this is going to be preserved for all time, for all people of all languages to read. May your peace abound. It has seemed good to me to declare the signs and wonders which the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is far, is is from generation to generation. You know what Nebuchadnezzar usually says with things like this is I and me and mine. And listen to him saying, I want all people from all time of every language to move forward to know that I, Nebuchadnezzar, have found something greater than myself, a kingdom greater than my kingdom, and a God greater than I am. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house, flourishing in my palace. I mean, you get a sense here, like, how many of you have, you know, talk about your life, like, I was flourishing in my palace, right? (laughs) (laughs) I love the language here. It's like, this guy, like, this is his life. He flourishes in his palace, right? I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house, flourishing in my palace, and I saw a dream, and it made me fearful. 
And these fantasies, as I lay on my bed and the visions in my mind kept alarming me, so I gave orders to bring into my presence all the wise men of Babylon so that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the conjurers, the Chaldeans, and the diviners came in. These guys are still around, right? And he's like, look, I just need help understanding this. And I related the dream to them. He's not playing tricks this time. But they could not make its interpretation known to me. But finally, finally, Daniel came in, whose name is Belshazzar, according to the name of my God, and in whom is a spirit of the holy gods. And I related the dream to him, saying, O Belshazzar, chief of the magicians, since I know that a spirit of the holy gods is in you and no mystery baffles you, tell me the visions of my dream, which I have seen, along with its interpretation." Now, these were the visions in my mind. As I lay on my bed, I was looking, and behold, there was a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great, and the tree grew large and became strong, and its height reached into the sky, and it was visible to the ends of the earth. Its foliage was beautiful, and its fruit was abundant, and it was food for all, and the beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the sky dwelt in the branches, and all the living creatures fed themselves from it. And I was looking at the visions in my mind as I lay on my bed, and behold, an angelic watcher, a holy one, descended from heaven. He shouted out and spoke as follows, chop down the tree and cut off its branches, strip off its foliage and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches, yet leave its stump with its roots in the ground. But with a band of iron and bronze around it and the new grass of the field and let him be, let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him share with the beasts and the grass of the field and let his mind be changed from that of a man and let a beast's mind be given to him and let seven periods of time pass over him. This sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers and the decision is a command of the holy ones. in order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows on it whom he wishes and sets over it the lowliest of men. This is the dream which I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. So Neb's got a problem. He's had another really disturbing dream, and he's had this history with dreams where it seems God speaks to him and and tells him what's going to happen through his dreams, but he doesn't understand it. And God is getting down to the very heart of Neb's problem. His issue here is that he thinks he is in control. He thinks that he as a man is powerful. Remember the vision he had before. He's the head of gold, right? He's the greatest king and the greatest kingdom that would ever live. And he set up his own statue later to say what? That the gold statue meant that his kingdom would rule forever. There will never be a kingdom of silver, a kingdom of bronze, but that he, Nebuchadnezzar, would reign supreme forever was his way of thinking about it. His kingdom is his, and all that he has is a result of his greatness. But we see that that's not God's perspective at all. Paul, thousands of years later, would write in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, for who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? God's perspective is is that everything that you and I have is a gift given to us by him. You say, well, you know, I've worked really hard. Yeah, but 
you were in a position where you could work really hard. You were given gifts and abilities that made your hard work enable you to succeed. You were born into a family that had the means to educate you. You were born into a family that had the positions that where you could get to where it is that, that you could succeed. Nebuchadnezzar may have been a very gifted man. He appears in every, in every way to be an extraordinary person. But he was born in the right time, in the right place. He was given those extraordinary abilities from somewhere. He didn't create himself. And yet, he fully believes that his glory, his success is the result of his own greatness. And that is keeping him from knowing the true God. And he appears to truly want to know God. And yet, this is blocking him. So he turns to Daniel and says, Now you, Belshazzar, tell me its interpretation. And as much as none of the wise men of the kingdom is able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able for a spirit of the holy gods is in you. Right? And I mean, we don't have to even know the interpretation to know that this is probably, this seems like it's bad for Nebuchadnezzar, right? And so the Chaldeans are pretty sharp, Right? They're like, this sounds like bad news. I mean, he's, the tree's being cut down, and then it's saying he will be given the mind of a beast. And they're like, mm, why don't you try Daniel, Neb? <laughs> right? I mean, it's just smart for them to be like, mm, we pass. And here, even Daniel's looking at this, and Daniel, whose name is Belshazzar, was appalled for while his thoughts alarmed him. He's like, oh, man, you want me to tell you what this means? And the king says, yeah, yeah, don't let the dream or its interpretation alarm you, you know? And now he knows Nebuchadnezzar, and what he's hearing is not that. What he's hearing is, yeah, don't worry. If it's bad news, that's okay. I'll just rip you limb from limb and make your house into a rubbish heap. It's okay, right? He knows how Nebuchadnezzar treats bad news, but he's faithful. He's not the kind of guy you want to give bad news, but Belshazzar, Daniel, is loyal to God. And he says, my Lord, if only the dream applied to those who hate you and its interpretations to your adversaries. That's a pretty good start. That's pretty <laughs> diplomatic. The tree you saw, which became large and grew strong, whose height reached the sky and was visible to all the earth, that is you, O king, for you have become great and grown strong, and your majesty has become great and reached the sky and your dominion to the ends of the earth. In that the king was an, saw an angelic watcher, a holy one, descending from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it. This is the interpretation, O king. And this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my lord, the king, that you be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place be with the beasts of the field and that you be given grass to eat like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. And it was that it was commanded to, the stump with the, to leave the stump with the roots of the tree. Your kingdom will be assured to you after you recognize that it is heaven that rules. Therefore, O king, may my advice be pleasing to you. Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities, by showing mercy to the poor in case there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. And yet we read, all this happened 
than Nebuchadnezzar the king. It's so interesting. God is still trying to reach Nebuchadnezzar. There must be something that God sees within Nebuchadnezzar, a willingness. And God's looking at it and he's saying, you know, he's in this position, he has all this wealth, he has all this power, and he's prideful. But if we can get underneath that pride, if we can grate through that great wall of self-love that he has, he will come to know me. And God is willing to go so far and work so hard for someone that is willing. For decades, God's been trying to reach him. He's sent Daniel and his buddies, and he sent these signs, and he's done these incredible miracles, and it still hasn't gotten through, but God doesn't care. God sees something and knows that the pride is what's in the way, and he is willing to do what it takes to show him to answer the true questions that are bothering Nebuchadnezzar's heart. And it's so important that this is how we understand that this is what God is like, the way that God pursues those who are wicked, who are arrogant, who are evil. But if there's some part of them that truly wants to know him, he pursues them in an incredible way. Look at Luke 15, 4. Jesus teaches, what man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, rejoice for me, for what I have found, my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, if she lost 10 silver coins and loses one, or she has 10 and loses one, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it. When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. God is so excited over one person. One person is worth all the effort, not just Nebuchadnezzar, but you and me and all of us. God relentlessly pursues us all of our lives. It's what we do with that. It's how we respond to that. We can still harden our hearts. We can turn away from him. But God will continue to reach out to us and to get our retention. But a relationship with God requires understanding on our part and humility. That's the rub. That's the really hard part. Is that part where we come to understand there is something that is truly greater than myself. He has a name. He has a will. And he has spoken. And am I going to go my way and be my own God Or am I going to follow him? It's that lack of humility. And often God has to take drastic measures in our lives to bring us to the end of pride. I relate to this story personally in a way that um, is probably a little weird. In the sense of, you know, I'm not a king and I'm not Nebuchadnezzar. But I was raised in Worthington. And I was raised, you know, I was raised in privilege. I had a family that was, that was reasonably successful. 
And I was raised not under a religious system, you know, there was, we were agnostic, you know, we didn't know whether God was real or not. But I was raised, you know, especially my father taught me from the youngest age, my earliest memories are things like God saying to me, whatever you want to do in life, son, if you work hard and you put your mind to it, you can do it. And I believed that. I believed that to an unhealthy degree. And I mean, I'm like three years old and I'm hearing this and I'm like, you know, and I'm watching Superman and I'm like, if I believe and I work hard, I can fly, Right? And I remember spending hours trying to fly when, you know, Star Wars saw that, you know, I remember staring at the basketball being like, come on, I can do this, right? I mean, I, I to this day, I'm not sure, but I think it shook a little bit at one point. And I concluded as a four, five, six-year-old that the only reason I never accomplished these things was because I wasn't working hard enough. I mean, that really was ingrained in me as a young man that that was true. And as I, I grew older, I began to have some success with athletics. I was, I grew, I was, I was big, for, I was always the biggest kid in my class, and uh, I had a, a good amount of athletic ability. And so as I grew older, it became clear, like, you know, I was a football player and a wrestler, and like, that I was going to go, and I was going to get some kind of scholarship somewhere. And I began to believe that. And the people around me, the adults around me, began to believe that too, I remember I was 13 years old, and uh, I was about six feet tall, and I could bench about 300 pounds at 13. So people didn't treat me like a 13-year-old. And if you're listening online, please understand, I am not boasting. What these people are seeing is not a physical specimen. <laughs> I'm 42 years old. I'm balding. My butt went, I don't know where it went, a long time ago. I work now. My job is to study and pray and eat meals with people, and that's what I look like, right? <laughs> But when I was 13, you know, I was sent to John Cooper football camp to meet the coaches, right? And I had a personal trainer, and I was serious about being an athlete. And the adults in my life, all the adults in my life were like, yeah, maybe you could even go Big Ten, right? Either left tackle or middle linebacker. I started both ways on offense and defense. Except for my mom. She was a child psychologist, and she was like, you could be a dancer or an opera singer, right? <laughs> Mom didn't buy into it, but everybody else did, right? And so that was my mentality, though, was I was going to do that, and I was going to work hard, and then I also had that thing where it was like, and I'm going I'm to break the mold. I'm going to be, you know, I want to be the captain of the football team and the lead singer in the musical. I wanted both, and that was what I pursued. And I remember uh, the way that God began to come into my life was uh, through girls. As I got interested in girls... It was really frustrating because I would like see a girl and I'd be like, she's attractive. I want to get to know her. I would pursue her. And she would be like this conservative walking Christian who loved Jesus, which got in the way a lot of, of a lot of my goals when I was 14 years old. <laughs> and it was like, we would break up. The next girl loves Jesus. It happened three or four times. It became a joke with my friends, right? I'd be like, hey, check her out. And they're like, yeah, I bet she loves Jesus. You know, I'm like, ah! And she would. It always happened. I became interested in a, in a, in a young lady and pursuing her. And, and see, 14-year-old uh, Christian girls have 44-year-old uh, Christian mothers. And when giant 13-year-old, 14-year-old boys want to date their daughters, they want to talk with those boys. And I had a lot of talks with moms who would give me tracks 
and talk to me about Jesus Christ. And I remember one in particular, we were sitting down and she was like, okay, but you know, I, my whole thing was, you know, religion is fine for the weak, you know, that's fine. If you can't deal with life's problems on your own and you're not strong, then you can be a Christian or whatever else you want, but it's a crutch. I don't need that. But if you need it, I, you know, I don't judge you. Really, I do, but no, I don't. <laughs> you know, and she was like, yeah, but what if God is real and you're missing something and he wants to come into your life? And I was like, you know, you know if he appears physically in front of me, then that would be something, right? But that's not going to happen. That's not what you're talking about. You're talking about a one-way conversation that you make believe is a two-way. And my big thing was this. This is the pride that was in my heart was, so you're saying God made me, and then she would be like, yeah, but he has a problem with me. Yes. So God doesn't like what God made. Well, kind of. Well, that sounds like God's problem to me. That, was, that sounds kind of like Nebuchadnezzar, doesn't it? I think that's the kind of pride that I had. But she convinced me to do something. She convinced me to say, like, look, look, I went to bed that night and, you know, it bothered me. Okay, what if, I, if God was there, I wanted to know him. It bothered me. So I prayed for the first time in my life. And I just said, God, if you're there, you're going to have to show me why I need you because I don't see it. And if you're real and you want a relationship with me, then I do want that. I had a, a willingness, but I had pride. And I said, show me, because I want you to show me if I need you. And I spent a couple days, you know, is like a stranger going to come up on the street or the rainbow? Nothing happened. And I was like, sweet, push that aside. Never have to worry about that again, because if God was real, he would have answered that prayer and went on into years of madness that were not at all connected with God. But what did happen was later that year, I got a stinger, and they x-rayed me, and they found out I have a congenital birth defect called spina bifida occulta. It's the mildest form of a congenital spinal birth defect. It's in my C6 vertebrae, and it meant I could never play contact sports again. And I'd had, you know, it was early. I mean, I was, you know, 14 years old. I, had, I wasn't very far down the road, but, I mean, there were big expectations and big dreams, and it was like, nope, you're done. No wrestling, no football. And I'm like, well, I, I, I am doing the theater thing, and, the, and I'll just make that. I have to, I've always said, you deal with the consequences. So I threw myself into that. My sophomore year, my parents, who met in kindergarten and were married for 25 years, got divorced. Uh, it turned out, we'd never seen them fight, but it turned out that there were a lot of problems there that we didn't know about. So I threw myself into that theater stuff, my girlfriend, and had this really unhealthy relationship in high school. And uh, my junior year, she and I broke up. And it was like, I remember, I was a senior year, I was driving down the road, bawling. I mean, it was just, I was a mess. And I didn't have the words that I have now to explain to you what, what, what happened, but I, I, there was a definitive moment where I was thinking to myself, I was saying, okay, how did I get here? Because I never want to be in this place again. And the, the thoughts that, that were going through my mind was, well, everything that makes me me, I didn't have words like identity back then, but everything that makes me me, I'm a football player, I'm a Lowry, and I'm, I'm a boyfriend to this girl. Those things are gone. And I don't know what makes me me anymore. I don't know who I am. And uh, whether you believe in this kind of thing or not, God spoke in my heart. 
He didn't, it wasn't, I didn't hear an audible voice, but it was a very clear thing in here. And what it was was, do you remember praying to me three years ago and saying, why do I need you? And I thought, yeah. And he said, you're welcome. Totally happened. So imagine uh, I'm driving down, uh, it's like Cook Road, and I, I pull my car over. You know, I'm 18 years old. I jump out of the car, and I'm just like walking around like in the ditch, like, what just happened? You know, I believe that God has answered this prayer. And the thought that comes next is, if you want to never be here again, then you have to define yourself by something that can never be destroyed. And I thought, okay, I need to find that. And God is real, and God answers prayer. And I'm going to find out who that God is. Please don't be the God of the Bible. Please don't be the God of the Bible. <laughs> but you're real, and I'm going to find you. And I began really pursuing faith. My next girlfriend loved Jesus. <laughs> took me to a Bible study at somebody's house. It was so weird that they studied the Bible in homes. And I came to Christ through Xenos Christian Fellowship's high school ministry in uh, 1993 because God had laid my pride low. And that's what he's doing with Nebuchadnezzar too. And I think that's why I relate to this is I, I get where he's coming from and how God is so merciful to him. Look at what happens here in verse 29. This is again Nebuchadnezzar talking. He says, 12 months later, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and the glory of my majesty? And Babylon was considered one of the greatest cities ever. It was one of the seven wonders of the world, uh, the hanging gardens of Babylon built by Nebuchadnezzar. No one had ever seen anything like Babylon. And Neb built it by the might of his own power, according to his testimony. And while the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you. Immediately the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled and he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle and his body was drenched with dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nail like bird's claws. I love this painting. It's hanging, it's hanging in the uh, British Museum of Art, especially the claws. They are like little bird claws. He was laid low in seven years. Seven periods of time, it says, of madness, the glory of the king became desolate. But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. And for his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will and the host of heaven among the inhabitants of earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? Whew. At that time, my reason returned to me. My majesty and splendor were restored to me. 
for the glory of my kingdom and my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out. So I was reestablished in my sovereignty and surpassing greatness was added to me. And now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the king of heaven for all his works are true and his ways are just and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. That's his journey. Decades of God reaching out to him. Seven years of madness. Finally, it took seven years. It wasn't like it was like a month, right? Seven years to break his pride. And he looked back at that later as the greatest act of kindness that God had ever done. And I have to agree with that. You know, I don't think that God made, all of a sudden I got spina bifida because I prayed that prayer, right? I don't believe that God made my parents get divorced. God's will is not divorce. But those things were going to happen no matter what, but God used those things to show me what I needed to see. And God used this to show Nebuchadnezzar what he needed to see. And God will use whatever you need to show you what you need to see, if you're willing. He was fully restored into his leadership role, And he shows us that pride and love of self are the great barriers between us and God, right? So what should we do? How do we understand this? Well, we can follow Daniel's advice. Daniel's advice to Nebuchadnezzar before all this went down is quite extraordinary. He said in 427, Therefore, O king, may my advice be pleasing to you. Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor in case that there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. Lower your pride, O king, and let God in. Those years of madness may have been able to be avoided if only Nebuchadnezzar had allowed his pride to be broken. If he had humbled himself before God at that moment, Probably none of that other stuff would have had to happen. And that's what we need to do is we need to be humbled before God. If I had been humbled before God when I was 14, when my friend's mother was was sharing with me about Jesus Christ, maybe the regrets that I have over the next three or four years wouldn't have had to happen. The way I lived my life is some of the most deeply painful things, even today at 42, some of the most deeply painful things and regrets in my life exist from that time. And maybe I wouldn't have had to have gained those scars if I had just lowered my pride. Now, I'm so grateful, I'm so grateful that God broke my pride. But what if it hadn't had to happen? What if you're in your years of madness right now and you're realizing that you are exactly like that and you are spinning off and you know that what you are doing is not good for your life and that you are building regret for yourself? You can stop that right now. You can get off that crazy gerbil wheel of regret that you're building for yourself and lower your pride and let the God of the Bible come in. John 3, 14 and following says, As Moses is lifted up the servant in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in, in him will have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, 
but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world. And men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Is that you? Because if it is, you need to know that was me. And that was so many of us here. And our pride and our desire to do what we want and to not be told and to feel like, you know, we're the masters of our own destiny and we're the ones who decide for ourselves. Those were the things that brought the sadness and regret into our life. And the thing that has brought joy, the thing that has brought love, the thing that has brought harmony within ourselves and peace and wholeness is Jesus Christ. It's the light. And we don't stand here in judgment of you. We stand here to plead with you to let the days of madness be over and to begin a relationship with God. He who practiced the the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. It is God who will do these things. Let go of your pride and let Jesus into your life. There's another arrogant ruler who would tell you the same thing, whose pride led him to the murder of Christians and the attack of the body of Christ. His name was at first Saul and it became Paul and then he met Jesus Christ and was humbled in the same way that Nebuchadnezzar was. And what he would write years later in 2 Corinthians 5.20 is therefore we as ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. We are not so prideful anymore that we won't beg you to feel and to experience the joy that God has given us. There is nothing great about us. There is only greatness in our God. And we want you to experience that greatness because we know that you can be filled with the joy that we know. But you have to receive it. You have to lower your pride. Give up the fight and admit that you were not God. The other thing that I really hope that we can take away from this, when you think about the story that I told you about my life, or when you think about Paul, or when you think about Nebuchadnezzar, or when you think about so many of the stories that exist in this room, so many of us were so far from God, and we were so angry and attacking and evil towards the Christians In our lives, I can tell you there were many, many people who came to me and tried to tell me about God's love, and I was rude, and I was mean, and I tried to make sport of them, but I was close. And Nebuchadnezzar was evil and prideful and arrogant, but there was something in him that was real, and the people in your life who seem far from God are often the people who are actually closest and do not give up on them. Do not judge people by, by how much you should invest in them, how much you should pray for them, and how much you should love them by how close they seem because you do not know what God is doing in their hearts. That's what we've got from four. Next week, we have Daniel chapter five, the writing on the wall, which is, I think, one of the more incredible uh, examples of the historical reliability of Scripture. 
Not to mention some more lessons on pride and God being sovereign. God, so many of us here know you because you got in under our pride and you, you and your sovereignty brought us low. But we also recognize that that wasn't the end of our pride, that we still, uh, to this day, uh, do prideful things and are offended and, 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 and are selfish and we struggle and we recognize, God, that we still need more and more humility and meekness as we pursue you. We're so grateful, God, for the ways that you have humbled us and for the areas where you have come in. And we ask, God, with all sincerity that you'll help us to continue to grow so that we can be a better example to those who don't know you, that we can be a brighter light, and that you'll use us as you use Daniel and his friends to bring love into a place where they didn't know real love. Amen. This study was recorded at Zenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.